This is the Weekly Parsha with Rabbi Mendel Lipska from Chabad of Hyde Park. And a wonderful Erev Shabbos to all of you. Great to be here. Great to be back. And to talk to you about the Parsha. A special Parsha it is. A wonderful Shabbos it is. In fact, it's one of those that has a special name. Shabbos Shekolim. In fact, tomorrow we take out two Torah scrolls, in one we read the portion of the week, and in the other, for Maftir, we read the portion dealing with the mitzvah of Shekalim, where the Jewish people, people between the age of 20 and 60, were obligated to give the half shekel on an annual basis, and those monies were used for all sorts of important things, for the communal offering sacrifices on a daily basis in the temple. It was used for bedek habayis. It was used to repair and to fix the uh, temple and all that needed to be done in order to maintain not only its spiritual integrity, but its aesthetic beauty as well. And this is the Shabbos always before the month of Adar, if it comes out on Shabbos Rosh Chodesh, or the Shabbos before it always comes out this time of the year, before the month of Adar, when we read this, the first of the four parshiot, the first of the four special Shabbatot that we will be celebrating all the way, bringing us close through Purim and up to Pesach, please God. And this is why it's a special Shabbos. It's Mishpatim, as I mentioned before. And Mishpatim refers to the types of laws. It's a portion that deals with the types of laws that are reasonable, rational laws that make sense. Laws that, well, every normal civilized society would implement because without which you have a breakdown of order. And in order to maintain a stable society, it's necessary to ensure that these Mishpatim, these civil statutes, are in fact part of the system of life, the fabric of life, to ensure a smooth and healthy and, well, a non-corrupt society. This is what the Parsha talks about. And yet, strangely enough, the portion begins with the words, and our commentaries point out, Rashi in fact points out, that as the previous laws, the ones that we read last week, the Ten Commandments, the highlight of the Torah, were given at Sinai. These mishpatim, these civil statutes, these reasonable, rational laws were given at Sinai as well. And why is it necessary to point out that, in fact, these laws come from Sinai? After all, these are laws that, as mentioned, any normal civilized society would implement. Why is it necessary to have the stamp of Sinai applied to these laws as well? And one wonders, we just had the high of Matan Torah, we just had the high of receiving the Torah at Sinai, encountering the most incredible revelation of God himself as he descended and presented the people, the Jewish people, with the Torah, a moment of incredible greatness, and one would think that the first set of laws that one should deal with are laws dealing with far more esoteric subjects, ideas of faith, greater dimensions, and yet it seems to be a bit of a downer. We talk about mishpatim, and what kind of mishpatim? A society that is far from a perfect society, a society where people have to be sold into servitude because they were thieves and couldn't afford to pay back that which they have stolen, and therefore they were sold by the courts in order to help them repay that which they've taken 
unlawfully. And that indicates a situation where society is no longer as strong or as good as one imagined it would be. And not only that, but you have a condition where there is thievery and people have to be put into situations of difficulty in order to repay that which they have done wrong. And one thinks, what is this connection with Matan Torah all about? Matan Torah is a time that the Jewish people stood at the height of spirituality. This incredible moment of revelation, connection with God, was something which was absolutely unique in all of history from the moment of creation onwards. This particular act of God giving the Torah was not merely presenting the Jewish people with a set of laws, but it was a total upheaval, so to speak, of the entire creation, where the higher and the lower were now able to intermingle, and the lower were able to achieve the highest levels, and the highest levels came down to help the lower levels fulfill their purpose of creation. And yet, when we speak about Mishpatim, we talk about a condition of society where there's thievery, where people have to be sold to servitude. It's somewhat of a downer after the excitement and joy of Matan Torah and what is that all about. And as I mentioned before, it's a special Shabbos. It's Shekalim. We talk about the half shekel that the people had to present and pay into the temple. And while, of course, the Parsha that deals with Shekalim is connected with the time of the year, the time before the month of Adar, nonetheless the fact that it comes out on the same Shabbat as does Parshish Mishpatim is an indication that there has to be somewhat of a relationship between the two. There has to be a connection between the idea of Mishpatim and the idea of Shkalim. And if there is time, we'll explore that a little bit later. But for the moment, what is Mishpatim all about and why do we give it such prominence that right after the story of Matan Torah, right after the story of Revelation, we speak about these laws. Now, there's a certain word, I don't particularly like the word, but it's a word that's used very often by those who discuss, well, law generally, Jewish law in particular, and they speak about the minutiae, those little simple things, the minute, the small laws, the small details of what Jewish life is all about. Suggests, therefore, there are some enormous laws, some important laws. There are great ideas that have to be developed. And then there's the minutiae. There are those almost insignificant elements of life, of law, that we have to fulfill, but certainly they don't possess the importance and greatness of those other huge laws. And this is how many people look at the idea of Mishpatim, those laws which, of course, lend themselves to reason and to rationale. It's something which, well, any intelligent human being understands one thing. Well, these are the minutiae. These are those smaller, almost insignificant details in which we have to find some sort of purpose and meaning, but ultimately these aren't the great important laws of Torah as brought down in the previous Parsha, the Ten Commandments, etc. And I say I don't like that word minutiae because it suggests somewhat the idea of less important laws, less important moments of life, less important acts of life. The Parsha is telling us something which is very very significant. There's no such thing as insignificant law. 
Quite to the contrary. The greatness of how we live and what we believe in is expressed ultimately in the so-called smaller details of life. It's within these smaller details of life that one begins to understand and see dimensions of faith that are far greater than those theological laws which deal with faith directly and those lofty concepts. It's particularly within the ordinary that one has to begin to see the divine. Yes, we see miracles. We see tremendous acts of God. We see moments that change the world, dramatic moments, a world that has, well, it will never be the same again after Matan Torah. The Jewish people, week after week, we talk about the incredible miracles, the miracles that Moshe showed, the miracles of the of the ten plagues, the miracles of crossing the sea, the miracle of, of the battle against the Amalek, the miracle of receiving the Torah at Sinai, one dramatic scene after another, one important moment after another. And while, in fact, those dramatic moments and acts certainly impress, the greatness of the human being is the ability to see the divine in the ordinary. Yes, we love miracles. We ask God for miracles. We ask God to bring about dramatic change in the most incredible sort of way. But the true, mature, understanding person is the one who's able to see that which appears to be somewhat unimportant. And within that situation, to recognize the divine, to recognize the presence of God, to recognize the holiness and the purpose. And we'll talk about that more just now. This is the Weekly Parsha with Rabbi Mendel Lipsker from Chabad of Hyde Park. We're talking about recognizing the divine within the ordinary, recognizing godliness within the ordinary. Yes, of course, each and every one of us knows that when it comes to dramatic miracles, we see the presence of God. But when it comes to the ordinary, we can somehow fool ourselves into thinking, well, the ordinary is just that. It's a small, insignificant sort of place. It's ordinary. And yet when we begin to uncover, the fact remains that there is an essence of godliness, even in the, well, simple and ordinary. Talk before about these laws, these mishpatim. These mishpatim basically are laws that lend themselves to human reason, to understanding, to logic. But because of that, they are no longer in a state of holiness, because after all, we say to ourselves, once we understand them, basically they are simply an extension of human reason, and human reason, no matter how great, is limited. But there's another problem. Not only is it limited, but when you fulfill these laws because you understand them and it makes sense to you, the power of reason and rationale can twist those laws to such a degree that even the most basic humane laws can be completely misrepresented and, in fact, bring about the destruction of society. As we've seen throughout history, people will do the most terrible things. Nations will do the most terrible things. And yet they seem to justify, to explain why, in fact, they do that. You know, in our very own history, again, tragically, the story of the Holocaust, it wasn't as if the Germans felt they were murdering Jews. Killing Jews was not considered murder. And therefore, Germans, being a rational, reasonable people, were able to justify the most horrific acts of genocide and murder. 
because it was basically an extension of human reason and human intellect. Mishpatim are very important, but it's important to recognize the divine within the ordinary, within these Mishpatim. And we do them, we fulfill them. Of course we understand them, but the reason we fulfill them is with the same degree of absolute devotion and holiness as we would the most lofty esoteric faith dimensions. This is something that we have to understand, that we have to believe in the sanctity of the ordinary, that this has been sanctioned by God, this has been given by God, and therefore we have no right whatsoever to tamper with these laws. These laws are eternal. Yes, you say to yourself, well, every society can somehow fine-tune these laws in order to, well, make them work for their particular society. As Jews, we do not accept that. These are everlasting laws in all times, in all places, in all situations. By all means, understand as much as you can, but ultimately you have to realize that the basis for all these laws are an absolute faith in God and the acceptance of his word as being sacrosanct and holy eternally under all circumstances. And this is something which is heavily emphasized at the beginning of this parsha, Ve'ela HaMishpatim, just as the Ten Commandments were given at Sinai, and they have the visible stamp of godliness. Similarly, these laws as well were given at Sinai, and they too have the divine stamp. God himself says, this is the way you should behave. And as we go through the parsha, we find all sorts of, well, wonderful and interesting laws dealing with the subject and other subjects. But there are two that stand out. In fact, something that has to be studied again and again. We come across a passage that says, Do not accept a false report. And a few sentences later, we speak about Midvar Sheker Tirchok, Distance yourself from any type of falsehood. And one would think to oneself, why does God have to tell us something as obvious as that? Because when we begin to examine the nature of what a falsehood is, what is a lie? A lie is the distortion of truth. A falsehood that's a complete and stupid fabrication isn't a lie. It's a fabrication. It's a fantasy. A lie really is when you take something that sounds true, that looks true, and you slightly change it, you distort it to a small degree. That is the ultimate lie. And this is something that we have to be so careful of, not to allow ourselves to be influenced by false reports and to distance ourselves from falsehoods. We live in a world, whatever the words that are used today, whether it's fake news or whatever the case might be, we live in a world where, unfortunately, there are so many lies thrust at us at all times. And we don't even realize that there are lies because they're so cleverly presented that the distortion of truth is not obvious to most people. They simply accept it as truth. They don't examine, they don't investigate, they don't check to see if, in fact, what they hear is true. Is it valid? Is it real? Does it have any sort of authenticity? And this is something that we have to understand in our own society more than at any time, 
the idea that if, in fact, we want to remain loyal to God, we cannot tamper even with the most, well, simple things, ordinary things, and to distance ourselves from anything or anyone that tries to distort the truth and thereby create sheker, create falsehood, something which is destructive and ultimately brings down validity and sanctity and decency and morality within any society. This is something which is so important for us to understand. The fact that we are seduced almost by the glib talk that we hear always. But we have to listen very carefully. And we have to say to ourselves, when we put that bit of information next to the Torah laws that we are obligated to fulfill, does it gel? Does it actually stay in a situation where I can see authenticity and truth? Or in fact, is it a lie? And this is something that we have to live with at all times. If we train ourselves, we train our children to recognize the divine within the ordinary, to search for truth as truth is defined by Torah and Torah alone, then the life that we live is guaranteed to be one of holiness, of sanctity, of purpose, of greatness. We are fulfilling the will of God at every single level. But if we allow ourselves to simply use our human minds and brains and power of reason and justification, we can end up in the most disastrous and strange places, places that unfortunately don't bring dignity to man, to mankind, to humankind, but in fact bring a great shame disaster and disgrace to the human condition. And as we look at the world, we have to at all times say, yes, this might be popular, this might be acceptable by so many people, but is it the truth? And more importantly, is it the truth of Torah? Does it in fact have that strength and power? Otherwise, it's something which is destructive, is something which will destroy not only the individual, but ultimately bring about the destruction of society as well. And tragically, how many times have we seen just that? When you think about it, the amount of, well, so-called news that exists, you look through stories, you look through, well, and you think to yourself, are these things true? Isn't this a slight distortion of the truth? And as any honest journalist will tell you, that more than often, of course, you present something in a way that brings, well, a lot of appeal to the public. People will want to hear that information. It sounds exciting. It sounds something that, well, something that I'd like to know more about. Do we stop and do we use our power of judgment and reason? Do we stop for a moment and ask ourselves, is this in fact means remember at all times the simple and most ordinary aspects of life if they don't carry the stamp of divine authenticity of Torah if they don't have the same value as any other law that was given at Sinai then you shall know you are being fed a lie something which, well, again a distortion of truth, and the slightest distortion of truth 
is in fact a lie. Yes, it might be a bit more palatable. It might be a bit more acceptable. It might be easier to hear that bit of lie because, well, it makes life, well, you think it makes life a bit easier. But in actual fact, upon closer examination, this is, well, the first step away from the path of life, which is good and proper. You know, you don't get lost suddenly. You get lost step by step by step. You walk away from the trodden path. And before you know it, you are in unfamiliar territory. You are lost. And this is what happens to society again and again and again. The small changes that we don't recognize, the small influences that we don't recognize, the small ideas that we don't recognize. And suddenly society begins to shift and change. And this is why it's important for us to be ambassadors of truth. It is important for us to be individuals who, in fact, talk truth, the truth of Torah. And the way we talk truth, the way we are ambassadors of truth, is by the examples and models that we present. We are individuals who stood at Sinai, each and every one of us. We may not consciously remember it, but each and every one of us, our souls were present at Sinai. And we experienced that great and glorious moment. And we have to realize that deep within ourselves, there is a very real conscious place where that reality exists. And we have to somehow dig it out from within ourselves. We have to create with ourselves the courage and the joy to be an ambassador of truth. Now, being an ambassador of truth isn't always a popular position to be in because very often when you consider it to be an ambassador of truth means you stand alone because so many people around you prefer to live that distortion of truth, prefer to live the lie. But if you are an ambassador of truth, you need courage and you need joy. You need the ability of saying, well, I won't be influenced. I will stand strong by that which I believe in and with. I work all my life to see the divine within the ordinary, to see the presence of God in the simple, that throughout life it's the detail. It's not minutiae. It's not these, well, insignificant, unimportant acts and situations. These are tremendous acts. The slightest gesture is as important as the most dramatic gesture. Yes, of course, the dramatic gesture occupies time and space and has a wonderful audience, but it's the simple, ordinary gesture. It's the simple, ordinary dimension of life, which ultimately reveals the truth of our purpose and the truth of our being. More of that soon. This is the Weekly Parsha with Rabbi Mendel Lipsker from Chabad of Hyde Park. We're talking about the idea of truth, and the only way that you can see truth is truth has to be pervasive. It has to be there in every single detail. And this is why these laws, these simple, ordinary laws, they ultimately reflect truth in a far greater way than the most dramatic expressions of truth. It's because in these small areas, we work hard, we toil to reveal the truth and to act in an honest and truthful manner. That's when the whole fabric of society, the whole fabric of life is held together by these details of truth, these details of holiness. Yes, they appear to be 
ordinary, but each and every single stitch in that fabric is something which has the importance of the entire piece of fabric. And I mentioned earlier on that it's Shabbat Shekalim, and we are going to read tomorrow, the after portion, the whole mitzvah of giving the half coin, etc., etc. And there's so much to talk about. There's one detail, I think, which will connect the Parsha of Mishpatim as well. And that is, the part of the money that was raised with these half shekels was used for Bedeka buys to repair the temple when it needed repairing. And in fact, the Haftarah that we're going to read tomorrow tells us about a time that the temple was in great disrepair and the new king, a young king, arose and he collected all this money to use to fix the temple. Now, the idea of repairing something, well, it carries with it a certain majesty if you think about it. We live in a world where everything is replaceable. You break something, you chuck it out. You don't fix things. You don't repair things. If it's old, if it's broken, if it got a hole in it, throw it out and get something new. I don't know if you had to repair your car lately. I had to. And it's a strange thing. <laughs> Nobody fixes things anymore. You chuck out this part, you chuck out that part, and you just throw in a new part. So what happens is the garbage heap grows, the refuse heap grows and grows and grows, and things aren't fixed now, while, of course, this is something which affects us in life because we live in a world where it's probably cheaper and easier to replace things. But when you live in a world where the idea of repairing things no longer seems to be the rule, then this affects human behavior as well, the idea and need of having to repair yourself. Now, the Torah talks to us about the temple. It says, God says, I will dwell among you. And our sages say that each and every single individual is considered to be a temple. And yes, things do go wrong from time to time with the passage of time as a result of accidents. Whatever the case might be, things have to be repaired in life. Within ourselves, yes, there are times and situations where we have to repair things. No, we can't simply take a section of life or a portion of self and chuck it out and replace it with something else. We can't take out the spirit of life and replace it with a piece of plastic. There has to be the idea of repairing things. Now, repairing things can be repentance. Repairing things means working at transforming a negative into a positive. Repairing can be so many different things. But repairing means looking at details that, for whatever reason, are no longer functioning as well as they should and fixing those details. Not rejecting them, not throwing them out, not saying they're no longer part of me but having the strength and the courage and the patience and the wisdom to repair things, to fix things, to fix things within our society, to fix things within ourselves. When you think about it, what happened to all those wonderful artisans and craftsmen who would sit for hours fixing things, the fascination of seeing people that had skills, that had abilities, that had hands, they were able to fix things. It took precision. It took time. It took an attitude where I'm not simply going to throw things out. It happens to relationships as well. In relationships, we see an epidemic of people 
well, throwing things out, throwing each other out. Life is just that way. We no longer understand that there's a permanence to things, and we have to keep on repairing things as best we can. And by as best we can, I mean to do so with a tremendous sense of earnestness and devotion and focus. This idea of simply creating a refuse heap that becomes bigger and bigger and bigger is something which I believe is morally and ethically wrong. You have to learn how to fix things, how to repair things, people, relationships, yes, even physical objects. It's necessary to see the value of things. These things are not there simply to throw away. And that, of course, is the relationship between the Parsha of Shkalim and the Parsha of Mishpatim. The idea of seeing the sanctity, the divine, the divinity within the detail, the ordinary, the simple. The idea of seeing little what others might consider unimportant and insignificant acts and situations. To see within that a huge revelation of God's presence. And by dealing with those details, with a sense of correctness, we cherish them. We look after them. If necessary, we fix them from time to time. Then this is the road that ultimately brings about a situation of truth and wholeness and completeness. And this is why this is a very special Shabbos. It's a special Shabbos because here are the divine laws that kind of, well, slip in and slip out. They seem to be also simple and unimportant. But within those small laws are registered the most incredible dimensions of God's presence. We speak about the idea of the half shekel, repairing things, fixing things, bringing it back to a state of wholeness and newness, not to throw things away and not to chuck things out. And this is why when you're in shul tomorrow, listen carefully to the Parsha. It's an amazing Parsha. It has so many different and interesting laws. And if you're able to reflect for a moment or two, you have a chumash with some commentary, ask yourself about the juxtaposition. Why does this law seem to be connected to that law? And there's no relationship. There's no obvious relationship between the two. Why do we say this? And as we go through the Parsha and we use our objective minds and the guidance of our sages and commentaries, we'll begin to see a tremendous majesty of greatness and wisdom and godliness in the Parsha. And when we listen to the Haftarah in the second Torah, I mean the Maftar in the second Torah, listen carefully to that law. And when the one reads the Haftarah, listen carefully to that story, it's a fascinating story, and it makes for wonderful reading. And not only for wonderful reading, but a wonderful insight into life, how to fix things, how to recognize things, and to bring about a state of completeness and a state of wholeness. Good Shabbos.